His compassions fail not, they are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's make sure that we're in fellowship. Give everybody the opportunity to utilize 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. A few moments of silent prayer or confession of sin, privacy of our priesthood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to fellowship tonight around the study of your word. Father, your word is absolute truth, and it sheds its light upon every area of our life, especially uh, our thought life, not just the things we think, but how we think, how we perceive reality. For if your word is truth, then that tells us exactly what reality is. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight and look at these things that are somewhat difficult to understand, pray that you'd help us to see these things, how they relate together and how they relate to our own lives. As we do this under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to James chapter 3, James chapter 3, verse 14, and we will continue our study in James as we see how to endure in times of testing, how to handle adversity with Bible doctrine, to avoid converting outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. We're in the second major division of James. As I said, James is focused on the theme of handling adversity. He revolves this around three basic points. Be quick to hear. That is, be ready to hear doctrine, listen to doctrine, study doctrine, make the study of doctrine the highest priority in your life. Secondly, be slow to speak. This has to do with sins of the tongue. And then third, be slow to anger. Slow to anger. Anger represents the whole array of mental attitude sins and emotional sins that so easily distract us from our spiritual life and walking with the Lord get us into carnality. We find ourselves in the middle of this paragraph at the end of chapter 3, which began in verse 13, extends to the end of the chapter in verse 18, and really functions as a transitional paragraph between being slow to speak and slow to anger. The focus here is on wisdom, how we think, and the difference between the person who is operating on human viewpoint thinking versus divine viewpoint thinking. The world has its own concepts of what makes one wise, and yet, in the opinion of God, this is nothing but foolishness. Divine viewpoint says that real wisdom has its source in Bible doctrine. James asked the question back in verse 13 to get us to think about how we live our lives and how our thinking has been revolutionized by Bible doctrine. He asks, Who among you is wise and understanding? If you think you have wisdom, in other words, it should be evidenced by the way you live. 
In other words, doctrine is not simply some accumulation of academic knowledge. This is the Greek concept of knowledge and wisdom. This is not the biblical concept of knowledge and wisdom. It's not just an accumulation of facts. It's not just knowing history. It's not just knowing theology. But it is getting it deep into your soul, into your heart, the inner core of the thinking of the soul, so that it revolutionizes the way you perceive reality. So that when you encounter any situation in life, any adversity, any prosperity, whatever it is, then you are going to evaluate that situation on the basis of Bible doctrine and make the right kinds of decisions in terms of application. This is his point. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. Then there's a contrast. The contrast is between gentleness of wisdom and bitterness in the soul. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So what you see is in verses 14 and 15 is the characteristics of a divine viewpoint mentality. And then in verse, uh, well really down through verse 16. And then in verse 17 and 18 the contrast with divine viewpoint uh, mentality. We have seen in our previous study of verse 14 that bitterness is both an internal mental attitude sin and it is also descriptive of the external circumstances of the person who rejects God's provision for handling adversity in life. We look first at Hebrews chapter 12, which talks about uh, root of bitterness, where the mandate is given, do not let any root of bitterness springing up, for by it many are defiled. And we looked at what that meant, the, the phrase root of bitterness. And we saw that in context... It's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 29:19, and relates there to the prohibition of idolatry to the nation Israel. That it, the warning was that if they rejected God and chose idols as the source, as the ultimate definer of reality, and that they, instead of handling problems by dependence upon God, they tried to handle their problems through human viewpoint religious systems, then the result would be bitterness. And it creates a cycle. As you fail to handle external pressure, when it is converted into stress in the soul, there is sin nature control of the soul. And because you have failed to block adversity with doctrine, what enters your soul is bitterness. So there is the external Adversity described as bitterness, and then how that creates bitterness in the soul. Bitterness in the soul, we saw, was defined as disappointment and resentment because things have not turned out the way we think they ought to turn out. Now, that's the key concept. We're constantly trying to define reality on the basis of what we want. This is what is called autonomy. From the Greek word autos meaning self and namos meaning law. Man wants to be a law unto himself. We want to define reality. We want to define uh, happiness, what makes us happy. We want to define how to handle problems and what, what creates lasting solutions in life. 
That's the essence of the sin nature. We've been studying that on Sunday morning, the first hour in Galatians. What is the essence of sin? That man wants to determine his own destiny. He wants to be the master of his destiny. He wants to be the final arbiter of truth. He wants to be the one who defines reality and not listen to God. He wants to determine his own destiny so that when things do not go the way we want and we encounter disappointing circumstances, we encounter hostility or rejection, then, and we don't get our way, then we react in, better, in bitterness and jealousy. So external adversity, and adversity is always the outside pressure of life's circumstances. When adversity is converted to stress in the soul, it then produces bitterness as we react to that. And often what you see, not always, but often what happens is people then reject God as they get caught up in rebellion rather than seeing the stress as an opportunity to turn back to God and to recover through the grace recovery system using 1 John 1.9, getting back in fellowship and using the uh, 10 stress busters, what happens is you see a degenerative cycle take place where the bitterness is intensified in the soul. Their heart is hardened. That means the mentality of their soul is strengthened in their negative volition. This in turn means that as they face further, if you're a believer and you face more divine discipline to get your attention, then instead of handling that through the problem-solving devices and stress busters, instead of beginning with confession and getting back in fellowship and applying doctrine, you react again to God in bitterness and rejection, and the whole cycle just continues as man seeks to be that law unto himself. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and here it's assumed to be true, it's a debater's technique, if, in other words, when you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the mentality of your soul, that's what heart refers to. This is not talking about emotion. Even though, I'm going to redefine my diagram of, uh, of the soul here. Let's put mentality at the very center. Two circles, two concentric circles. The inner circle is the heart, the cardia. The outer circle is the mind, the noose. And then we have the other facets of the soul, the self-consciousness, the emotion, the volition, and the conscience. That's the real you. Now, these we break these apart for instructive purposes. Because certain things take place in the cognition of the soul. Other things are clearly emotions. But when you get in the heat of a situation, often these overlap and run together in in reality. But in terms of analyzing them, we break them apart. What determines the issues in life is what's going on in the core of your thinking, what the Bible calls the heart, the core of your thinking. Whether And that core, let's break it out here is going to look like this. We'll divide it into two compartments. All your life, from birth to salvation and to the point that you began to learn some doctrine, you were filling up the core of the mentality of your soul with human viewpoint. But then you begin to learn divine viewpoint under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, 
and you begin to store Bible doctrine in your soul as epinosis doctrine, divine viewpoint, which becomes usable. But the issue here as to which you operate on is going to be determined by your volition. When you're positive to doctrine, when you're in fellowship, you're going to be operating on divine viewpoint. When you're negative to doctrine and out of fellowship, under the control of sin nature, you're going to be operating on human viewpoint. This will work itself out in the way in which you handle adversity, either through human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. Now, what happens is that as a believer, you're faced with three enemies. The first two are external. Satan, who is the enemy of every believer, and we're told in 1 Peter chapter 5 that he goes about the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And then Satan usually operates or predominantly operates uh, with a host of demons who do his bidding. A lot of people come along and say, well, the devil's after me. Well, the devil is not omnipresent. The devil can only be at one place at a time, and he probably doesn't get too concerned about most of us. But he, he may, on occasion, send demons out to take care of a particular believer who's really causing him some trouble. But this is uh, abnormal because, you see, uh, he also utilizes what the Bible calls the world system. This is from the Greek word cosmos, K-O-S. M-O-S, cosmic thinking. And in every generation, in every era, cosmic thinking shifts. Some call it the spirit of the age. The German term for it was zeitgeist. Uh, others called it a, uh, the world view or Weltanschauung. It has to do with the mentality of the culture. Every culture has its, has its way of looking, and define, looking at reality and defining Reality, And as you move through history, as we're going to see in a little bit, you also see that, that change from one generation to the next so that the way in which, if you're here and you're in your 20s or 30s, the way in which you look at reality is much different from the way your parents look at reality. And if you're here as a baby boomer in your 40s or 50s, the way in which you look at reality is much different from the way your parents and your grandparents look at reality. And what makes that difference is the influence of culture and the cultural thinking and the spirit of the age on each generation. And one thing that's important for us as believers is to be able to identify what those cultural influences are because that's part of, of worldliness. There are going to be within worldliness those things which appeal to the sin nature and provide rationalizations for our sin nature. There are also going to be those things in the, this cosmic system, this worldview, that relates to our production of human good and morality. You see a lot of that. You see that in American history, I think. In the 19th century, there was a lot of legalism that was the result of a combination of ideologies that dominated American history in the 19th century. One was uh, the transcendental movement. You had people like Thoreau and Emerson. You had the Alcotts. You also had um, uh, who, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe, the Beechers, Lyman Beecher. They, were, they bought into some degree. On the one hand, you have the, the non-Christian influence, which is very utopian, 
and then on the other side you had a um, uh, a Christian influence. You had the Beechers, and you had a number of other uh, uh, so-called evangelicals and theologians like like uh, Finney and others, and they were post-millennial. The church is going to bring in the millennium. Post meaning after the millennium. The millennium refers to that perfect uh, messianic age on the earth when Jesus comes back. We think that Jesus comes back first to establish His kingdom, but post-millennialists believe that eventually the church is going to improve society to the point that uh, the millennium is brought in by the influence of the gospel and then Jesus will come back. Now, we chuckle at that. Uh, I was reminded at this conference I attended last week that in the foreword of Charles Feinberg's classic work on millennialism, he, he wrote, he really just juxtaposed amillennialism and premillennialism in that book because in his foreword he said postmillennialism died in World War I except postmillennialism was resurrected in the 1970s and has come back with a vengeance. So it is having a great, a great impact. But in both utopian socialism and utopian views, you have an emphasis on rigid morality. You have to improve society and impose rigid standards on, on people in order to bring in this perfect society. And, of course, they were identifying certain great social sins, such as um, drinking, and you had the temperance movement, uh, slavery, and you had the abolitionist movement, and uh, you also had child labor. I'm not saying that these things were wrong, but it's the way in which they sought to address them. There was a tremendous amount of arrogance in the assumption that man, by man's efforts, could solve these problems. Uh, you had uh, women's issues and the whole suffrage movement. Most people don't realize this, but all of these came out of that same mindset. Uh, from the post-millennial side, you had the same basic sins were identified, and so these two forces united. But what it produced in American history was a self-righteousness and a legalism that polarized, for one, one thing, in the slavery issue, it polarized the nation between North and South because of the fiery rhetoric of the abolitionists in the North versus the um, hotheads in the South who reacted to that. But the bottom line on the whole thing was an arrogant attitude that man by man's effort could, efforts could solve, solve his own problems. And that affected the way people in America viewed themselves, viewed their institutions, viewed their whole culture, and problem-solved. So there's this level of legalism and self-righteousness that dominated the whole culture. It's quite different now. You look at how things changed in America, especially after the 60s. It's just the opposite. There's this anti-antinomian uh, spirit that dominates the age. Everything is relative. There are no absolutes. And every now and then you see some reaction. All of that relates to worldly thinking. Now, James says that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that is man putting himself forward as the final solution, the ultimate solution to all life's problems, selfish ambition in the mentality of your soul, and that's why we draw this here. Even though these are emotional sins, they derive from, from the emotion 
but they begin to dominate the thinking in the soul so that they affect the way the person thinks. Mental attitude sins then will affect the way you think. And then you have the prohibition in the last part of the verse, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Very interesting juxtaposition of ideas here. In arrogance, there are four components to arrogance which we've identified in the past as arrogant skills. The more you practice these, the more skilled you will be at promoting yourself and your arrogance. The first is self-absorption. And if anybody doubts that we live in a society that is self-absorbed, just look at the way in which the the British reacted to the death of the uh, of Princess Diana. Look at the way the Americans have reacted in this orgy of self-absorption and grief over the death of JFK Jr. Not that these aren't these are clearly tragic events and tragic for the family, but for the news media to camp out on everybody's doorstep and give us a minute, blow-by-blow, microscopic view. Of, of every detail in people's life, we just become so self-absorbed in, in the whole grief process. And that leads to the second area, which I have just recently added to this dynamic, is self-indulgence. When we become self-absorbed, then we start indulging ourselves. We indulge our emotions so that Rather than saying, okay, it's, it's grieving, I'm sorry this happened, it hurts, I'm going through a lot of sadness and sorrow, but now I'm going to move forward and move through this, we just stop and we revel in it. And this is all part of what's happened as a result of our psychologized culture. As part of psychotherapy, we're told to get in touch with our emotions and that you have to know how you're feeling and why you're feeling and just, just revel in it for a while so that you're not... Uh, divorced from that. And that's all part of, of psychology and it's just self-indulgence because it's going to promote what? A positive self-image. Notice the emphasis is on self, self, self. So self-indulgence then leads to self-justification. Now that we have indulged ourselves, we're going to justify it. We're going to find reasons, find reasons why this is good and healthy and beneficial. And we're going to justify all of our activity. And then this, in turn, is going to cause us to be more and more divorced from reality. Uh, Arrogance distorts reality. And now we're into self-deception. And we no longer can see things. And then this, again, leads to greater self-absorption and increased self-indulgence and more sophisticated forms of self-justification and then a further distancing of our mentality from reality in self-deception. And so it goes. It goes on and on and on. And it, as you get more and more people who are operating on the arrogant skills, then you develop an entire culture that is divorced from reality. And therefore, we, that brings us to our last phrase here, they lie against the truth. When you are 
self-deceived and you are in arrogance, you're divorced from reality, and so you no longer understand what truth is. Now, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, before he went to the cross, Pilate looked at Jesus. Jesus, He he accused Jesus. They, they, They accuse you of being the king. And Jesus said, you have spoken the truth. Pilate disdainfully says, what is truth? What is truth? is a question that had plagued man throughout the ages. The Greek philosophers from Aristotle on down to almost modern times in philosophy have defined truth as that which is uh, which aligns with reality. That which expresses re- reality and that which is consistent with reality. Now there's an underlying assumption here. And the underlying assumption is that there is an objective, knowable reality. Remember that. We're going to come back to that later on. That there is an objective and knowable reality so that we could speak about truth. From the ancient Greeks in the 5th century B.C., uh, even before the, the, in, with the pre-Socratics, Anaximander, Anaximenes, Thales, uh, all the way up to about 1800, People believed that truth was knowable and that we could know truth and it was objective and verifiable. But then there was a major, a major shift. And today we live in an era when people have lied against the truth and they reject the truth. Yet as Christians we believe there is an absolute knowable truth. We be, Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And the truth will make you free. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Now look at the next verse. Verse 15 says, This wisdom, that is this human viewpoint thinking, is not that which comes down from above, doesn't have its source in heaven, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. Now let's look at these three uh, adjectives before we move on. The first, earthly, is the Greek word epigeos. E-P-I-G-E-I-O-S. This is from, has its root in the uh, Greek word gea, which refers to the earth. And that's being popularized today by those who are earth worshippers. Mother Earth, Mother Gaia. You'll find a lot of talk about that in a religious sense by environmentalists. And the second word is sukike. P-S-U-C-H-I-K-E. Sukike. From suke meaning soul, where we get our word psychology, the study of the soul. Sukike. So this doesn't refer to a believer. It refers to that which is soulish, related to the person who is a dichotomous, just having a human body and human soul, but minus a human spirit. So it is soulish. And last, it is daimoniodes. Looks like this. D-A-I-M-O-N, which is the root from demon, O-D-E-S. It's demonic. It has its source in demonic. So here we see that according to the Bible, you have an identification between human viewpoint thinking, foolishness, 
worldliness, which is a synonym, worldly, earthly, or synonyms, worldliness, and demonic. So this is satanic type of thinking. Why? Because it has its roots in arrogance. Now, we live in a time today which is characterized by some of the strangest things going on. For example, just down the road at UConn, they're continuing education courses. They're offering a course called Heart Math. Now, fortunately, this is not going to be offered on a Wednesday night, so I'm not going to have any competition for those of you who want to go up there. But let me tell you what Heart Math is all about. The heart ma- this is a description from the catalog. The Heart Math system helps you to engage emotional intelligence through individual and group classroom instruction. Through a combination of lecture, experiential, and interactive exercises, I'd just love to know what those interactive exercises were. You'll learn how to freeze frame during stressful situations and immediately engage new intuitive insights. These insights, or leveraged intelligence, results in improved business and personal relationships. The key benefits of participating in this class include in-the-moment stress relief, freeze-frame arrests stress while it's happening, and allows you to access free energy released by successfully managing mental and emotional reactions. Now notice, you've got to learn to read things like this Critically, That's why we learn doctrine, is so that we can put on our doctrinal glasses of wisdom, and when we see things in the newspaper, we go to movies, we watch television, hear the news, we can evaluate all of this stuff. It doesn't just come into our soul uncritically, but we can think about it. Notice, what is the epistemology here? Epistemology is how do you know what you know? How do you know truth? How, according to this system, how do you know truth? You'll learn how to freeze frame during stressful situations and immediately engage new intuitive insights. Intuition. What is intuition the epistemology of? We've gone over this. Mysticism. Just another brand of human viewpoint mysticism. These insights, and they call it leveraged intelligence, which is an oxymoron. Okay, it's going to end up, look at what it's going to provide for you. I know you're going to want this. Increased, increased personal effectiveness and creativity. Freeze frame helps you cut through complexity and develop balance and wisdom as basic skills. Notice the emphasis on wisdom here. I want you to see how they're using these terms in contrast to how the Bible is using these terms. Two, organizational effectiveness. Freeze frame has profound impact on continuous improvement, productivity, and reducing people costs. You businessmen, you're going to need this. An enhanced quality of life. Freeze frame enables you to make choices that are in line with your core values. Well, where do you get these core values? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Your core values, not somebody else's, not an absolute core values, but your core values. You create a joint venture between the intelligence of your mind and the wisdom of your heart. (laughs) Sounds like something you'd hear in a revival somewhere sometime. 
a workbook is provided for the class. And the guy who's teaching the class has spent over 20 years teaching this sort of mumbo-jumbo with Fortune 100 companies. And that he ha- it goes on and gives all of his credentials. He's got two postgraduate degrees from, the, from UConn. And he's got all kinds of, uh, 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 of credentials. And he does this with, with banks and uh, different corporations. And so this is what I'm telling you, one of the dangerous things that we have to watch out for when it comes to human viewpoint wisdom like this. This is nothing more than demon influence. This is what demon influence is. It's the doctrines of demons. And when stuff like this comes in, let's say you're down here at a job and your employer is bought into this. Now, all of a sudden he says, man, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, so I want all my employees to go to this. Big corporations are doing this. I had a guy in my church ten years ago who had to go through a whole New Age seminar. Uh, he was working for Southwestern Bell. And so what do you do when you're a believer and you get involved in a situation where all of a sudden now you're having this kind of mysticism, this false, it's a religious system, and it's being rammed and crammed down your throat? Because you're going to say, well, that's not what I believe, and immediately what's happening? You're going to be coming up with a judgmental a decision based on your value system, which is totally antithetical to what's going on around you. Here's another example to sort of whet your whistle as to what's going on out there. A woman in her 30s awakens one morning with severe abdominal pain. The intensity of the pain makes it difficult for her to get out of bed. She takes some painkillers and tries to sleep, but the pain remains. Finally, she calls her doctor. A nurse answers and courteously inquires about the symptoms and her recent activities. The nurse tells the woman there's nothing seriously wrong with her. She doesn't need to see the doctor nor take any medicine. Instead, this is an opportunity to explore her body and the meaning of her pain. The real source of her problem is her stress and anxiety about the pain. She needs to get in touch with her inner self and be enlightened by what her body can tell her. She should take two or three days to relax and focus on herself, self-absorption. And all will be well. In fact, she could be at a turning point in her life if she learns more about herself and how to listen to her body. Not impressed by what the nurse tells her, the woman insists on talking to someone else. She eventually gets an appointment with the doctor. He discovers a huge growth on her ovary and recommends immediate surgery. The growth is very fragile, bursting immediately upon removal. If it had burst while inside her, the consequences could have been much worse. Serious infection, possibly death. After surgery, the pain disappeared and has not recurred. Now, that is just put to get an example put together from different real-life scenarios, but that can happen. If you're going to school and nursing, something like that, you're going to run into those kinds of situations today. In terms of history... 33% of Americans in a recent poll said that they thought it was very possible that the Holocaust did not occur. 33% of Americans did not think that the Holocaust ever occurred. In literature, how you interpret or understand literature is radically shifting. And when you think about the fact that not only is the Bible literature, but also the Constitution and legal documents as well, their literature, how you understand and interpret literature is very important. In today's world, there's a completely new approach to the written world. The approach is that we can't really understand what we read. 
We see a big shift away from looking at words and understanding words. You see this in education theory, and the focus is more and more on visual things. And this is enhanced by both television and computers because you're looking at things. That's why uh, some computers were considered to be better because they were more intuitive. They had little icons on little pictures on the screen, and so you could figure it out quicker than having to type in some kind of code. And so for a while, those computers were uh, more popular than the others until the others decided to get with the program. (laughs) But in the new approach to the written word, what we're told is we can't really understand what we read, at least not by attempting to discern, listen to this, at least not by attempting to discern what an author meant to communicate. In other words, the author's intended meaning cannot be discerned or understood by you, the reader. Therefore, texts no longer have a particular meaning. They become nothing but the images projected by an author and mean whatever we create them to say. So this means that For example, the U.S. Constitution is a text. So are all laws, regulations, and ordinances. So when you apply this to law, then these are just images, and so that can mean whatever you want it to mean at the moment. So truth becomes very fluid, and you want to know. A classic example of the fluidity of truth was when, um, I forget his name now, he was the uh, press spokesman for the White House about two years ago, and it was right after the Paula Jones um, thing came out, and, and the president had gone in to uh, give his deposition. And in that deposition, he said that he admitted finally that he had had an affair with Jennifer Flowers. And so, when the press aide came out to be um, uh, interviewed by the press, the press said, Well, wait a minute. Back in 1991, when Steve Croft, with uh, 60 Minutes, interviewed the president and his wife and said, did you have an affair with uh, Jennifer Flowers? And he said, no. Now he's admitted, yes. Which is it? And the press aide, in typical, classic, postmodern fashion, said, they're both true. (laughs) What does it is? Mean. You see, you, you don't know what words have different meaning. One second they can mean one thing, and the next second they can mean another thing, and it all depends on whatever meaning you want to assign at that particular moment. Because you see, what all of these various examples have in common is that in our culture we have lost a concept of truth as absolute. So we're operating on arrogant skills of self-absorption, which means that we're viewing all reality very subjectively, and we're lying, we're distorting, we're deceiving ourselves in reshaping truth so that there is no such thing as truth. In a recent survey, college kids were asked if there was such a thing as absolute truth. That is, is there something that is true at all times in all cultures for all people? Various responses were given to the question, such as truth is what you believe. There is no absolute truth. Someone else says, if there were such a thing, how would we even know it? 
we're in an epistemological morass out here. I mean, we don't know anything. Whatever's out there, we can't get in. Why would you even say that? And then one that we ought to pay attention to was the response. The responder said, people who believe in absolutes are dangerous. Dangerous. Why is that? We're redefining a very important concept in our culture. It has a whole new meaning, and if you haven't caught this, you need to wake up. We have redefined the term tolerance. Tolerance, for most of you when you were growing up, meant that you held to your convictions, your beliefs, you knew what was right and what was wrong, and there may be someone who disagreed with you, and you respected their right to disagree, but they were still wrong. But they had the right to have their opinions and have their views, and you tolerated that. Tolerance no longer means that. If you think it does, wake up. It doesn't. In another survey, people were asked two questions. Number one, which of these two statements would you agree with? People should, first is, people should hold strong beliefs, but respect the rights of others to hold opposing beliefs. Or, people should hold no strong beliefs. Now, which of those two would you agree with? Well, I know most of you, you'd agree with the second one. No, the first one. Eighty-five <laughs> percent of those who responded agreed with the second one. Eighty-five percent agreed that people should hold no strong beliefs. You see, there is no longer a universal belief that there are absolute truths or absolute values. Therefore, tolerance is now redefined to mean that, that not that you believe in absolute truth but respect those who hold differing views, but that unless you believe that all views are equally valid and equally true and that no belief system can claim absolute truth, you are intolerant. Let me say that again. If you be, unless you believe that all opinions and all views and all value systems and all belief systems are equally true and equally valid, you are intolerant. And intolerance is quickly becoming as great a social evil in late 20th century, early 21st century America as slavery was in 19th century America. And we as believers need to wake up and smell that we are and, and, and realize, smell the coffee, and realize that we're becoming further and further distanced from our culture. Because most people in our culture, and perhaps even some of your children, have picked up on that. That's what's seeping in through the woodwork. In fact, it's affecting, I think, hermeneutics, the science of interpretation, in small ways. Not that I would say that. New Testament scholars at some of our seminaries are necessarily postmodern, but it's affecting the way they handle the truth. And see, postmodernism, uh, which is what I've been talking about here, has this view of all truth is, is purely relative. And once you, re, once you start buying into that, and that's in the cultural realm, then what happens is it seeps into the church. Whether we realize it or not, it's, it's eking its way in through the walls. And you hear and you read in hermeneutics textbooks of how important it is to 
evaluate, understand, your, come to your view of understanding of Scripture and then compare that with others in the Christian community. And then as you compare with them and they compare with you, then you reach a new synthesis. And those of you who have any background in, in understanding Marxism realize that the essence, essence of Marxist philosophy was based on Hegelianism, which was built on the idea that you come up with a thesis at a particular point, and then there is antithesis, which is its opposite, and then developed from that is a synthesis. And this synthesis becomes a new thesis, and that has an antithesis, and then that in turn produces a new synthesis. And basically they're adopting a, a Marxist philosophy of knowledge to the study of the Bible. And it's eking in slowly, little way. You just see it in little ways here and there. Now in our current cultural context, religious belief, especially Christian faith, becomes just another valid option. It's, they no longer believe that, there are, that religions are based on truth claims, which are founded on historical fact. But you see, the very notion of historical fact is no longer valid. Faith has become something that is purely subjective and reduces interpretation, language, and meaning to nothing more than personal preferences or opinion. Uh, religion or faith is nothing more than an expression of your personal taste rather than a statement reflecting facts and reality because there is no knowable objective reality. Now, as I said earlier, historically, truth has always been defined as that which, as that which corresponds to reality so that reality was viewed as having an objective existence that was knowable. Yet today, truth is viewed as something that is just based on a collective consciousness. It is on the group. What does the group come up with? That's the collective consciousness. Individual comes up with his own view. Truth isn't something that's fixed by an external objective reality, but it is decided socially by a group or perhaps by an individual. Truth, therefore, is something that is manufactured or constructed. It's a result of being socially constructed. And so everything is the result of a social construct, whether it's the Bible, the Constitution, the Bhagavad Gita, the Koran, whether it's uh, Homer, or whether it's some tribal tale in Africa that's been handed down from generation to generation. All of these are social constructs. Now, in order to understand anything, what we have to do is to de- construct the text. That's where you hear this word that you'll find it more and more being used, deconstructionism. So that postmodernism is the world view and the and its application in law and interpretation is called deconstruction. 
deconstructionism. And then it also goes hand in hand with an emphasis on multiculturalism. And this flows from its emphasis on everybody as a source of their own truth. Because if your culture over here is African, and your culture over here is homosexual, and your culture over here is Asian, and your culture over here is, well, you're just a bunch of white male Europeans, and you're the worst of the bunch, but we'll let you in here because you've been here a long time, that your culture has produced its value system. And your culture has produced its value system. And you can't tell them they're right or wrong, and they can't tell you you're right or wrong. And if you're a Christian over here, you can't tell anybody else they're right or wrong. So every culture has the same value and the same significance and the same importance as any other culture. And if you come along and say your culture is better or try to make any kind of evaluative or judgmental decision based on an absolute about another culture, then you're the worst of all because you are intolerant. And this is the great social, social sin of the day. So how did all this come about? We have to understand a little history, come up with a, uh, uh, just, just sit back and fasten your seat belts. We're going to speed through uh, the whole church age here just to catch some trends so you see how we got where we are. One of the things that Hegel said was that we learn from history that we learn nothing from history. And the problem is that we don't see the trends of history very well. After Christ came, we'll draw this timeline up here to represent the the church age, up until the Roman Empire survived till roughly the 5th century. We'll just use that as a general round figure right now. In 425 A.D., you had the, um, the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea was called by the Roman Emperor Constantine. So we'll mark off the, the Council of Nicaea as the beginning of the Middle Ages, which we'll say ends in 1517 on October 31st, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses for debate. A thesis was a point of debate. They all had to do with the authority of the Roman Catholic Church and how to be justified. When he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany, that ended the Middle Ages. So you can divide that into an early... Middle Age and the later Middle Ages. But one thing about the Middle Ages, they were dominated by the Roman Catholic Church, but everybody everywhere had a theistic worldview, and they believed that God existed, they believed that God had communicated to man, and they believed in absolutes. Now, there was a lot of influence during that time from two sources in the ancient world, Plato on the one hand and Aristotle on the other. And that created quite uh, a lot of impact on the culture at that time. And we don't have time to get too sidetracked by talking about those issues. But as just an example, you had the big conflict with uh, Galileo. Galileo was in the uh, late Middle Age period as they're beginning to develop the scientific methodology. And Galileo... Uh, invented the telescope and he looked up at Jupiter and he saw the four moons revolving around uh, Jupiter. And so he realized that the 
up till that point because of, not because of the Bible, which is how every evolutionist scientist wants you to think of this. The Middle Ages, they believed that the Earth was the center of the solar system, that it was a geocentric solar system. And you'll always hear everybody say, well, this was a battle between science and the Bible. No, it's not. Don't ever let anybody pull that on you. It was a battle between Aristotle and modern science because the Bible does not state anything about it being an Earth-centered solar system. What happened in the Middle Ages is that the external dominant philosophy became Aristotelianism in the later Middle Ages, and as you synthesized Aristotelian thought with Christianity, you produced a, a new synthesis there that was a little bit of both, but that's where they got the idea of an Earth-centered solar system was from Aristotle, not from the Bible. And Aristotle became their authority for science in his book, The Physics. And then uh, Galileo challenged that thought, and because Aristotle had almost been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church in the late Middle Ages, you really had a battle between old science and new science. That's what that whole struggle was about. It had... And it, church authority came in there on the sideline, but their authority, was, it wasn't the Bible versus science, as you'll hear people want to portray it today. Now, in 1517, from 1517 through, we'll just say 1600, you have the period of the Reformation. Reformation, the battle cry of the Reformation, was the Latin phrase, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. The Bible alone, that is our ultimate source of authority. That is our starting point. But see, with the Reformation, you begin, you set something else, set, set another trend in motion, and you kicked off the authority of Mother Church. And so there's another group of people that are so glad to get rid of the authority of Mother Church because now we're free from theology and we can just go out and construct our systems of knowledge on the basis of human reason alone. And so they went to the other extreme, and you had the beginning of what is called the Enlightenment. And the reason it is called the Enlightenment is because we are free from the darkness of theology, and now we have the light of human reason to get us into truth. And in the early 1600s, you have, uh, in fact, in about 1596, the birth of a man who would be a Jesuit priest and geometer, René Descartes. And he changes things phenomenally for the whole Enlightenment period because he is going to argue from reason alone that man can arrive at ultimate truth. See, they still believed that man could achieve truth with a capital T and that man could have... There was a universal truth around which man could organize all, all meaning in life. So he came up with the phrase, cogito ergo sum, which is Latin and means, I think, therefore, I am. And what that means is that he said, okay, how do I know that God is not deceiving me? How do I know that, that you people are just a divine hallucination and God's just paying a trick on me? 
How do I know that pain is not just a figment of my imagination? So he used the principle of skepticism and he starts doubting everything. How do I know you exist? How do I know this pillar exists? How do I know the light exists? How do I know anything exists? How do I know I exist? Maybe I'm just a figment of God's imagination. But wait a minute. I'm thinking. Therefore, I have self-consciousness. I'm thinking. Therefore, I must exist. If I'm thinking, I must exist outside the mind of God. So, that's his starting point. I think, therefore I am. And then on the basis of that, that's the one thing he can know for sure. He tries to argue to all arenas of knowledge through the use of logic. He's going to apply the rigorous use of logic and he's going to come up with an argument for the existence of God, an argument for ethics, the whole realm of a philosophy on the basis of this one principle. And the, the great rationalists, he's the first of the great rationalists, were Descartes, Leibniz, and Spinoza. And rationalists put the ultimate authority in human reason. But it's an expression of faith, isn't it? I believe that my reason is capable of constructing a perfect understanding of reality. I can come up with truth on the basis of unaided human reason. Then, in reaction to that, you had some other philosophers, John Locke, uh, George Berkeley, and Hume, came up with what was called empiricism. They didn't believe that you could start with reason alone, but that knowledge started with sense data. It's what you see, what you feel, what you taste, what you smell. And that the mind, you're born with an empty slate. Aristotle called it a tabula rasa. You just have an empty mind. And all this sense information, your experience, comes into your mind. And then your mind categorizes and classifies it. And that becomes your basis for knowledge. So, so we say, to simplify it, it's experience. Based on experience. That man, on the basis of experience alone can construct his whole view of reality. But, of course, as we've studied many times, both reason and empiricism are limited. Ultimately, you're, you have to make some assumptions in reason that you can't prove. And so that's, that's, you have to just assume those by faith. Same thing with empiricism. You have to assume those by faith. And Scripture says that God has spoken into, human, into the human realm revelation, and we're going to trust that. So it's not that it is opposed to reason and experience, but that man is going to start from, the Christian view is that man starts from revelation and then through the use of reason and logic and empiricism, man is going to construct reality. Now that's the enlightenment thinking. That's what that enlightenment thinking plus Christianity, some other influences produced the American Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution and everything that happened in the foundation, founding of this nation came out of that particular matrix. But it was also, all of that period, uh, Locke grew up in a Puritan home. Um, Descartes was a Jesuit priest. There's this heavy influence of theism. And as a result of that influence of theism, they still believed there was an external reality and that there were absolutes and that man could come to a knowledge of absolute absolute truth. And then you had what was called the Copernican 
revolution in thought. Now, Copernicus, if you remember, was like Galileo. He said the center of the universe wasn't the earth. The center of the universe is the sun. Well, Immanuel Kant, when he wrote the Critique of Pure Reason in the late 1700s, said that the center for knowledge is not out there. It's in here. And everything changes. Because man can no longer know the ultimate. And he divides reality into two areas, which he calls the noumenal and the phenomenal. You don't need to know all the... You'll just catch the gist of all this. You don't need to necessarily learn all this terminology. I spent enough time in philosophy courses trying to do that. This is the realm of God, absolutes, truth, values. And then down here is the phenomenal. This is all your sense of data, all your thoughts, all the information. Think of it this way. We've got the church here, we've got an upstairs, and we've got a downstairs. Downstairs, you have all the details in life. Upstairs, you have that which gives meaning. Up until this point, all philosophers thought there was a staircase that got you upstairs so that you could know what was upstairs. Kant came along and said, there's no staircase. The only way you know what's upstairs is if you guess. If you think that, well, it has to be there, otherwise there wouldn't be meaning. But there's no evidence. In other words, with Kant, you destroy all objective knowledge. I can't know things in themselves. I can only know things as I perceive them. And so if I were to diagram this, I would say you start back here with Descartes and you have the shift in the Enlightenment. And then Kant came along and lays the seed for what we now call postmodernism. With Descartes, this became known as modernism. Gave rise to the to modern science. It gave rise to the idea that all truth is is knowable through the use of the scientific method, but you can't really, you still can't really uh, know God. And it ends up in in producing what was known as secular humanism. But in reaction to that, Kant comes along, destroys the possibility of all objective knowledge, and lays the seed. I'm not saying he's a postmodernist, but he lays the seeds that are later developed. Because postmodernism, frankly, is nothing but the old rationalism gone to seed, in my opinion. You just play out the, the assumptions to their infinite degree, and you end up in absurdity. And if you go through history, what you all, you'll always see that there's always a, a ping-pong effect in history. You start off with rationalism, and rationalism always produces skepticism. And that's what we had in the late 19th century, a skepticism about meaning and value and God and Christianity. You had the rise of 19th century religious liberalism, and liberalism infected all the major denominations. But it's characterized by skepticism. You can't know truth, you can't know God. And then you have, and that always leads to mysticism. Mysticism says, I just, if I can't prove it logically, then I'll just jump to it irrationally. And so it's a rejection of logic. It's a rejection of reason as a means to get to know truth. And the emphasis becomes on emotion and intuition. But see, you don't have any more truth. Somewhere in all of this, you've lost the concept that there are absolutes and that you can even know absolutes. 
So anybody who comes along and says you can know absolutes is now the enemy. And this is where we find ourselves. Now, Al, we Xeroxed that thing last, that handout last week. Did we make copies for everybody? Okay. We have an over, overhead here little chart that I'll just introduce now. We're running out of time, so we'll come back at next time. But this will be in the, in the bulletin Sunday just to give a contrast. We are theists as believers, and this, this column here explains the basic tenets of theism in comparison to postmodernism and modernism. But this is the thinking of the world around us. Now, why do we need to pay attention to this? Well, we don't need to get wrapped around the axle on it. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Some of you do, though. Some of you because of uh, just personal interest as well as uh, some of you in medical profession or nursing or other things may want to read up on, on some of this. There's an excellent book out called The Death of Truth. Uh, by Dennis McCallum, and it's a response to multiculturalism, and there are chapters in here on uh, health care, literature, education, history, psychotherapy, law, science, religion, and then a conclusion. But he goes through, it's very well presented. There are different people who write each chapter who are experts in that field, to help us understand how these things have changed. For example, in education, this was a report from New York's Educational Task Force. African Americans, Asian Americans, Puerto Ricans, and Native Americans have all been the victims of an intellectual and educational oppression that has characterized the culture and institutions of the United States and European world for centuries. This systematic bias toward Europe and its derivatives has had a terribly damaging effect on the psyche of young people of African, Asian, Latino, and Native American descent. This European-American monocultural perspective, it's another term for Christianity, uh, explains why large numbers of children of non-European descent are not doing as well as expected. So it's the result of Christianity's impact on Western Europe that the schools, kids in school can't read. This is what's going on in our world. Now, Romans 12.2 tells us that we are not to be conformed to the world. Now, the one thing that we have to do as believers, to some degree, understand what the spirit of the age is that's impacting our thinking. Because this is the continual pressure we're under is to conform to the world. But we're not to conform to the world. We're to be transformed. How? By the renewing of our mind. That's why you have to come to Bible class over and over again consistently, day in, day out, getting doctrine over and over again, because the pressure from the world is, has an affinity with our sin nature. And it doesn't take much for our sin nature to be soaking that kind of thinking up and then utilizing that to rationalize our own carnality. And I don't know about you, but my carnality doesn't need a whole lot of help from any new systems of rationalization. So we need to understand these things, and we're just going to spend a little more time breaking it down. But The Death of Truth, there's a couple of other books out there that I may recommend for you to read that are perhaps a little more basic, and we'll see about that next time. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word, for the framework that it gives us to evaluate what is going on in history and in our culture. 
Father, there is no hope other than your word. Jesus said he is the only way to you. That's a claim of exclusivity that is runs counter to everything in our society and our culture today, which is so caught up in relativism. Father, we pray that you would help us as believers to stand firm in doctrine and to be well grounded in the word because only in the light of your truth can we see light, can we make the right kinds of decisions and have our thinking renovated with divine, divine viewpoint thinking. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things as we reflect on them. In Jesus' name, amen.